everybody. This is Patrick Attaway, and this is Demise of the Podcast. This is my podcast about writing, specifically my book, Demise of the Trinity. And if you haven't listened to the first four episodes, you're going to want to listen to that. Also, if you haven't read my book yet, I'm going to tell you right now, don't listen past this point. Go out and buy my book. I want you to shell out the 99 cents to read my book. I don't think that's too much to ask for. Otherwise, you're going to have things spoiled for you. And at this point, I think that I should be able to spoil my own book for those of you who have attempted to read it. Today, I want to talk about two characters. I was going to do an episode on Birch. I think it's best to save that because he is such a major part of the book. And I've talked about him so much. There are a couple of characters that I think deserve a little bit more attention. So I'm going to talk about Alan and Harley Freudland and their inception and also how I developed them. I've talked about both of them before a little bit. I probably mentioned that how Batman influenced me in creating Hardly Freudland, but uh, there are a few other details that I'd like to give you, especially considering the earlier drafts of both those characters. Alan was one of the original characters that I wrote along with Veronica back in 2010. His original story was that he was going to help sort of repopulate the Earth with his best friend, and her name was Hal. Hal was a character that was left over from something else I'd been writing when I was in high school. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you what that was, as embarrassing as it is. I started writing a novel when I was a sophomore in high school about vampires. Now, this was right around the time that Twilight came out, and I had no idea what the hell it was. I I still haven't read Twilight. But at the time... I kept trying to figure out what I was going to write my debut novel about because I knew that I wanted to write novels. The The problem was that I needed to actually sit down and write one. I really liked writers like Stephen King and Piers Anthony, so I wanted to pick some sort of thing, some sort of trope. And I picked vampires because I loved vampires as I was growing up. When I was in elementary school, I was obsessed with these books that the library had on classic horror films and my favorite one was Dracula. And I have to admit to you right now, in front of God and everybody else, I have never seen the Bela Lugosi version of Dracula. I've also never read Dracula. I don't know very many people who have watched the old Bela Lugosi Dracula. And I also don't know many people who've actually read the book. And here's the thing. I've seen Plan 9 from Outer Space... I've also seen a movie called White Zombie with Bela Lugosi. I rented it from the library on VHS when I was a kid. And it's not really good. The one thing that I remember from White Zombie is that there's a scene where a man is trapped in a room that is sort of like the trash compactor from Star Wars. And this character, Hal, was based on a girl that I liked in high school. She was a new girl. She was a year younger than me. And I remember how... I have this thing for girls like that, I guess. She was a brunette. My wife is a brunette. Uh, She had 
sort of olive skin. My wife is Italian, so she has darker skin too. I don't know what it is, but I, it, she also had a slight goth emo thing going on. And, and in the end, she and I actually became friends at some point. But I never pursued her in that way because I was with someone all through high school. Didn't stop me from liking other girls, but I still, you know, I didn't really pursue any relationships in high school other than my girlfriend. But I, I, that didn't stop me from fantasizing and how was born out of that character. Veronica was also based on a girl that I knew in high school originally. Uh, not one that I liked, though. But how was supposed to be this very strong yet kind of manipulative vampire and a journalist, the protagonist of the whole thing, was in love with her. It was dumb. And it's a good thing that I stopped writing it. But I liked the name Hal. I liked the image that I had of her in my head. So I tried to pair her up with this character, Alan, who was also kind of a type. When I originally wrote him, he had long black hair, which he still kind of does in part two of the novel. And he was very quiet, and Hal kind of spoke for him a lot. And they were friends in high school, and he didn't know until he was 18 that he was the devil's son. One day after graduating high school, Alan and Hal wake up, and the world has ended, but they're the only two left. So Lucifer shows up in an ice cream truck. That is another idea that was prevalent throughout the novel that I nixed. And he was sort of their guide, and he was more of a Beetlejuice type back then. And I really refined all these characters quite dramatically, but the whole thing was that Alan was supposed to reproduce with Hal with Lucifer's guidance and prove to God that Lucifer was worthy of redemption and so was Earth. But the baby and Hal die. So Alan is left alone. And at some point, I had a, another part that I was working on where uh, Cain from the Bible shows up and takes Alan to another planet called Eden and Lilith is there. And Lucifer tries to force those two to mate and make a child. And Lilith uh, takes advantage of Alan. And it's a terrible scene. The whole idea of taking him to another planet, uh, the, the whole idea, the whole concept of my early novel was bad. And I'm glad that I scrapped that idea. Because... Uh, while I kept Alan as a character and developed him into something a little different, obviously, I am glad that I was able to kill my darlings, and it wasn't a very good darling to begin with. Harley came from this idea that I wanted to create a serial killer within the novel. Now, that, believe it or not, at the time was something new for me. Whereas now, almost everyone in the damn novel is a serial killer. It's kind of crazy how teenage boys romanticize serial killers. And I am definitely guilty of that to a degree. However, uh, Harley was this weird killer that was similar to the ice truck killer in Dexter. 
And Freudland is actually where I get uh, the name Freudland is from Jeff Lindsay. Jeff Lindsay's real name is Freundlich. And I changed it to Freudland because, for one thing, it was sort of homage to Dexter. But also, despite the fact that Harley and Dexter are nothing alike, I read one of the Dexter books and I hated it. I am not going to bash Mr. Lindsay. I'm not going to say a mean or bad word about him. I did not like the book. Harley's chapter began with him drugging his girlfriend and sacrificing her for God and removing all of her blood with a vacuum and shipping it off to a detective named Bouquet. Bouquet, as I may have mentioned before, was a detective in the novel that Aroma Thorne sort of took the place of, but he was an older man and he had a grandson that was friends with Alan and Hal. And all these things connected, just as they do now, but with different characters. And Harley became this strange media conglomerate, media mogul guy after I realized that, for one thing, my idea for Walter Grown to be sort of a stand-in for Mayfield Milk and have grown milk, that was a bad idea. The original concept was that Lucifer was using milk to brainwash people so that they became addicted to it and then it would be like a simple flip of the switch and Walter Grown would have a message sent out through the TVs and the internets and people would go crazy. Well, that was stupid. So I, I nixed that idea as well. But Mr. Freudland came along and his whole thing was the internet. And so I decided to change everything from grown milk to central network and make Harley the CEO of Fonda Communications. Suddenly, after I made Alan and Harley, who they are in the novel, I had three Antichrist. A lot of things that I wrote in this novel sync up, and I guarantee you, I am not smart enough to sync these things up the way that they ended up syncing up. Uh, for instance, Veronica kills her mother. Birch kills his father. Also, he's sort of the inverse of Ken Price in that Birch kills his father and he is better for it. And Ken wants to kill his father because he is angry and bitter about the way he was raised, but he never really does it. He thinks he does at some point, but he, he never really does it. Th those, those are things that I didn't plan. They just kind of happened. And the whole three Antichrist thing to go against the three people in the Trinity, well, that was just luck. I am not that brilliant. Uh, it's not a brilliant idea either. I'm not brilliant at all. Also, there is an interesting coincidence with Elon Musk. Freudland, like Elon Musk, wants to launch a satellite internet system that will put companies like AT&T 
and Verizon out of business. And the whole thing with that is once a satellite launches, everyone's devices automatically sync up to it. It's high speed, it's free, and it destroys an entire subsection of our industry. So apparently that's something that Elon Musk wants to do. And I had no idea. Uh, Mind you, I started writing this novel in 2010 and I had no idea who Elon Musk was until maybe 2016. Freudland is also not particularly interesting as a person. He's not eccentric. He's not handsome. He's basic. He is the face of a company without actually showing his face, unlike Walter Grone, who isn't a handsome man, but he's a distinct man. Therefore, people grew to trust him and his image, much like they do with someone like the CEO of Mayfield Milk. And the whole thing with Freudlin is that he is a bland antichrist, but he is perfect in that sense because he believes that he's serving God. And when he finds out that he's actually been serving Lucifer all these years, it crushes him because he thought he was good. He thought that all the things that he did, even if they were bad, that they were serving a higher purpose. Now, conversely, Alan, much like Murray, is raised to create destruction. And Alan possesses more power than Murray, but he never figures out how to properly process and channel it. And that's one of the reasons why Alan fails. He does destroy New York, but he doesn't destroy any other city. In an earlier draft, in fact, the draft before this rewrite that ended up in the book, Alan destroys Washington, D.C., New York, Los Angeles, and Atlanta. And Atlanta is where the final fight between Birch and Arthur and Veronica takes place because when Veronica came back in part two, she was part of the Trinity. And I changed that. However, I gave Alan uh, what I felt was a truly evil persona and a better evil persona this time around. He doesn't have a girlfriend, for instance. He has no interest in humans other than killing them. And at some point, he recognizes Jason Thorne as a part of his own bloodline because they both come from Lucifer in some form. Uh, But that's the only kinship he really displays. And he is not a complex character in that sense. And he's not supposed to be. And Freudlin isn't either, honestly. Freudlin, as I rewrote the novel, became more of a antagonist that was necessary rather than a very fully realized, developed character. He's more of a background character. Even though he has his own chapter, it deals more with Ken Price and it also, it's also a way to show the audience what Freudland's plan is. And of course, this whole shebang ends not because of Freudland, because Freudland doesn't cooperate with Lucifer. 
it all ends because of Charles. And Charles is the true ace in the hole. But Alan was obviously created with the intent of failing. Lucifer doesn't love his son. Murray loves Alan because that's his grandson. And he knows that he failed and not having anything to do with Veronica and just using her as a vessel to create Lucifer's son. He knows that. He feels bad for it. But he put so much time and effort into raising Alan. And one of the things that makes Murray really resent Lucifer is is that he knows that Alan is just a, a means for Lucifer to come back. Here's the thing. Lucifer knows that someone in the Trinity can hurt him and kill him and destroy his, his earth form, therefore banishing him from earth. He still exists in hell, but he can't come back to earth. Uh, so he creates Alan, not only as a third antichrist, but also as a way back in. Uh, all of his power is in that boy. And he can't do that with Murray. He can't do that with Harley. He has Veronica give birth to his son so that he can have an, an earth form if he ever loses that earth form. So he takes over his son's body and comes back as Lucifer. But the whole thing with that is Lucifer can't hurt, cannot harm humans because that's against God, God's law. I've tried to write Alan Moore since then. I tried to write more of Murray since then. And all those ideas got scrapped. And I've tried to incorporate Freudlin into other things. I wrote a short story that is on Amazon called Mary and, and Raymond, and it's about a man building a robot. And I wanted to show how uh, hardly Freudlin comes up with the idea for internet-powered vehicles because one of the, the big plot points in part two is that everything shuts down because they lose access to the internet and cars stop dead in the road. And I wanted to show how he comes about creating those cars and he was going to use... Uh, Marion from Marion and Raymond to do that because he knows that he built a robot and I didn't finish it. It wasn't very good. I say that a lot. I know that. I probably annoy you. I do I am very critical and I do probably throw away more than I actually write or rather actually publish and I am going to read to you today, by the way I cannot read the first time that Alan is mentioned after Birch's opening chapter is in Veronica's chapter uh, it is not very interesting though I want to read the first chapter in part two which is from Murray's perspective and it's where we finally get to see Alan in action because Alan is teased all throughout part one and finally we, we get to see what he's kind of capable of 
He picks the cindering Ford off the old airstrip and tosses the car back into the air and focuses harder than the first try. Alan pops the tires with his flames, but he still can't destroy the body. If he can't break apart a 1980s automobile, then the boy isn't fit to attack a city. He's supposed to play the destructive role in the apocalypse, and he lets his angst and ego get in the way. While he may be Lucifer's son, I had the devil as my father figure. Like last time, the car catches fire on the inside and Alan gets knocked down by the explosion. He's got more power than any comic book villain, yet he lets a door hit him in the head. I walk over to him and look down at my grandson with his long hair and torn black shirt and wonder why I ended up with another Ken Price. Gotta blast harder, I say. We can't move on to buildings until you get through one of these cars. Unlike Ken, Alan nods and pulls himself off the ground. He follows me to the parking lot without any remark or quip. Takes after his father, I guess. Lucifer says more with his eyes than any romantic playwright. Once he settles into his power, Alan might change his mind about all this. I love my grandson. I serve my lord, though I'd rather not lose Alan. Why does Satan always fail in his war against God? The Trinity and Birch stole the satanic title when he destroyed Lucifer's earth form. Closest thing the world has to true evil is Alan. When I consider how I failed Veronica as a father and Ken as a mentor, I know all the training can't prove anything to Alan but the overplayed mantra, death to all humans. What do you think of that Chrysler van, I point. It's even bigger than the Ford, Alan says. You can at least pick it up and bring it back to the airfield. Obeying me, Alan tilts the van over enough to shove his shoulder underneath and pull the vehicle over his head. Walking a little slower, he moves back to the airstrip. When he hauls the van in the air, his body erupts in a cloud of flame. And when I expect him to fall over again, the fire shoots forth and strikes the van before it hits the ground. Like a balloon popping, the car spreads hundreds of yards in every direction. All right, I say, good. Let's try flying again. It's it's weird, okay? It's interesting that I create this whole sort of grounded, yet not so grounded, part one, and then in part two, we have people flying in the air. I know that's weird. And I tried to th- make things, obviously not realistic, but sort of grounded in some form of reality. So that's one of the reasons why I didn't put Veronica in part two because she dies in part one. It's also a reason why I don't have, uh, God, I'm trying to remember who kills who in this version because I've written so many different versions, but there is a version. It's probably the last draft that I did before this one where Harley is the one who takes the satellite out of space because he finds out that he's actually serving Lucifer that angers him. It triggers him into destroying what he created, which is what Lucifer wanted. And then he gathers so much power that he's able to kill Murray and Lilith. And at some point, Veronica, I think she's there, but she just lets it happen. 
Veronica's very evil in that version. But here we see Murray as a true grandfather. He's mentoring this boy. And he also mentions Ken. And so you see a little bit of what he and Ken went through. Of course, Ken can't fly. But there's more of that in Price of the Trinity in some flashback, I believe. It's been a long time since I've read that book. But Alan is very obedient of Murray. He's, as Murray says, he's full of angst, but he, he wants to be the most uh, efficient mass murderer that he can be. And the difference here is that we actually have an interaction with Harley Freudlin and his son Jason later on, and Harley hurts his son, even though Jason is much more powerful. As I said before, I spent nine years writing this book, and you can tell that I don't have a problem with throwing out entire ideas and starting over and using the same characters and letting them evolve in my writing. And I don't really talk much about the writing process so much as the rewriting process on this podcast, but one of the things that I do that really helps me, and it's helped me create these characters like Murray and Ken and Birch, I really like to approach things like a method actor. And I've explained this to one of my writing friends a few years ago. And it's not in the Daniel Day-Lewis sense, but just kind of getting in the mindset of that character. One of my favorite things to do when I was in college was walk around with my headphones on and listening to music. And I would pick music that I thought characters would listen to, or I would pick music that inspired me to write certain scenes because if you just let your mind wander when you listen to music, especially if you're walking or you're driving, you come up with these interesting ideas. And that's where a lot of my ideas have come from. Presently, I am working on the Charles Price novel. I don't have a a title for it right now. Originally, it was called Invisible Touch because it was influenced by the Genesis album Invisible Touch, but in this current draft that I'm working on, uh, it's more of a two-part novel. And the first part is kind of like a standalone novella. And the second part will take place during various points in Charles Price's life. And you, you already know how that ends up because you've probably read Demise of the Trinity if you're listening to this. But uh, one of the things that I really want to rectify is showing what happens to Charles Uh, because a lot of is left to the imagination. I'll go ahead and tell you, Charles dies. Birch kills him. And I did not show that in the last part of Demise of the Trinity because I want it to feel like a cycle in a sense. And I felt that the last part of the novel was good enough. It was perfect the way it was. So, the fact that I had to go back and write an an introductory chapter with Birch finding Charles, that was all to get the to welcome the reader in, because as my uh, autobiography professor, uh, who was also a writing professor, informed us, uh, 
you want to invite your readers in, sort of like make them comfortable, make them want to come in, maybe have a cup of tea with you. And uh, starting the book with Al, uh, that that wasn't cutting it. And my beta readers let me know as much. But if I were to actually show Charles's death in Demise of the Trinity, I feel like it would it would be too obvious. And I couldn't show it from his perspective. I'd have to show it from Birch's perspective. And we all know where he's going to end up. And I, I did start writing a, a chapter, or rather a short story, where Charles goes to hell and Murray welcomes him, and his contract is still valid, so he doesn't have to suffer for eternity. But then I realized that Charles doesn't deserve a good afterlife because he's not a good person. Now, in his novel, I make it explicitly obvious that he is not a born killer. Ken, his son, is, but Charles actually does possess remorse. He does not go into killing people willingly, and he gets used to it, and he eventually enjoys it, but not at first. And he's also not this grand assassin. Ken was trained by Murray, who was trained by Lucifer. Charles doesn't possess anything like that. He's just a killer. And the only reason he gets away with it is because he has Lucifer on his side to cover his tracks. So, I've told you more than I needed to. I was going to talk more about writing, and I got off track. So, I'm going to stop myself here since I'm at the 30-minute mark. And I'm going to thank you for listening, and I hope you listen again. Go buy my goddamn book. Happy reading. Goodbye.